Okay, should we uh, make a start with the final sessions? So we're going to have a session uh, led by Professor Talbot and our specialist nurse Rachel Marsden on symptoms, uh, common symptoms that we've experienced in the clinic and suggestions for management and then a final Q&A session. We've got a number of questions already at the back but there's still time to put some more in um, which uh, will run for sort of <coughs> half hour, 45 minutes or so and uh, hopefully a slightly earlier finish than, than advertised but we'll see how it goes. Um, there's no, uh, no massive rush. So, over to Professor Talbot. Um, thank you very much. And so Mary Kay Close's terrific talk was the wonderful introduction to this because I think it gave me a nice warm glow that someone else across the pond thinks about the disease in the same way, which is good. So nothing I'm going to say is going to contradict the things you said, which is good. Um, so we are going to talk about symptom control. This is obviously not an exhaustive list. We chose the things that seem to be most important. And I'll talk about the first three things. Rachel will talk about the last three things. And then obviously we will be listening to your questions afterwards. Um, pain is something which crops up from time to time. Now, degeneration of the nervous system, whether it be ALS, PLS, or other conditions, is not intrinsically painful. But what it does is it disturbs the architecture of your joints, your muscles, your ligaments. So it creates mechanical disadvantages, which mean that most of us, as we get older, have underlying degenerative joint disease to a greater or lesser extent. Some people very severely. So it's not surprising that if you have a condition where your muscles are working against each other, the antagonist and agonist muscles, so those are, you know, my arm, there are muscles which, you know, pull my arm this way and those which push it that way. If they are working at the same time, they are exerting abnormal stress forces on the joints, the shoulder, elsewhere. So the joints that come up most often are shoulder joints, the back, hips, and that's because they, they take the brunt of this process. So, therefore, that sort of pain needs to be managed as a mechanical problem. Posture, mobility, reduction of spasticity, and regular use of analgesia, like paracetamol, which might seem like a weedy option, but actually, if used proactively, can be very helpful in any kind of joint-based problem. But there isn't a lot of evidence as to what you do. It's just based on trial and error, to be honest. So one of the origins in that kind of pain is spasticity problems. So let's focus on that a bit. Let's just go back to the anatomy that we talked about earlier. Now you're experts in the corticospinal tract. These fibers, what's the function of the corticospinal tract? It's actually to modulate things. So the spinal cord has a sort of motor program for things like walking. So there are some kind of moderately gruesome experiments that have been done in the past where people have isolated the head from the spinal cord in, in experimental animals and shown that those animals still walk completely normally if they're stimulated at the spinal cord level. So that program is there. Um, what all the brain is doing is adding in the voluntary component to that. And most of what it's doing, therefore, is actually inhibitory. It's actually turning off those things that shouldn't be active. So I'm standing up here now, you might think, not oh, what's going on in my legs, but actually, if all of my muscles were contracting at once, I would be very unstable, and we'll come to that. So there are lots of things switched off. And if you take away your corticospinal tract, you've got, you've got unopposed activation from the spinal cord, but that's what spasticity is. It's an unhelpful activation of muscles that should simply be relaxed. So if you get that, you get spasticity, you get cramps, 
And the startled thing that people have been talking about is part of that same reflex. And what it reflects is the fact that at any moment in time, we are in a state of readiness for movement. And you can see why that might be helpful. If we had to start up from a cold start, so our muscles were simply, had to be recruited en masse, we would have been eaten up by a predator on the African plain a long time ago. We have to be in a state of readiness for action and for movement, and that's what we're seeing in uh, PLS and spasticity, is that that uh, system is hyped up to the extreme. So that means if somebody drops a plate and makes a clanging noise, you will have an exaggerated startle response. So the approach to that is pretty much the same as the approach to spasticity, is to try and inhibit that output from the spinal cord by taking drugs that um, will affect the chemicals that are mediating that. Now, balance is very important. Why are people off balance? And it's, it goes back to this lower limb predominance. So those of you who have the worst problems are people who have marked spasticity of the lower limbs where the upper body is relatively flexible. And so if you take off, as in this diagram here, your upper body takes off at the normal speed, and your lower body is left behind, and your center of gravity becomes immediately unfavorable. So that's why people feel off balance. So how do you deal with that? It's rather difficult because using a stick can help that, because it just gives you something to um, allow your upper body to have some support and not to tilt you over. You can actually actively lean back. That comes with its own issues. Or you can try and engage your conscious brain to say, I'm going to do things more slowly and allow my upper body to just slow down and my lower body to catch up. These are things that can be done and work 99% of the time, but it's when you are distracted or impulsive, as we all are, or excited, then you forget to do that and you fall over. So it's very, very difficult, but it requires a, a mental effort. If you simply, as, as, as was said earlier, if you simply get rid of the spasticity, that sounds like a good idea. The problem is the drugs that we use to do that have no specificity, meaning they will affect the chemicals in the spinal cord that transmit between nerves to cause the spasticity, but they'll also affect the same cells in the brain which use the same chemicals, so they'll make you drowsy. So drugs like Valium are very good at relaxing muscles and they're very good at sending you to sleep. So my experience would be that we, we rarely reach a happy medium, actually. I think very often people try this and then we end up retreating back into a zone where they're not really getting that much benefit because they simply don't like being drowsy. Why would you? And um, so it's a very difficult area. We need different types of drugs, probably, to, to, to allow the specificity to, to occur. And there's a difference between whether you're walking or not, basically, because the other thing that is a problem is the scaffolding effect of stiffness. So it turns out that if you remove the stiffness completely, people can sometimes fall over because they're actually being, their upright posture and their ability to transfer and maintain ambulation is being supported by the scaffolding effect of spasticity. So actually, it may be something you don't really want to completely remove because you'll start falling over, and we've seen that. So once you've lost ambulation, if that happens, then you're in a different sort of territory because you can use botulinotoxin much more freely because, again, that paralyzes the muscles. You've got to be very careful and very expert in using it not to cause people to fall over. But once you're in a chair, if you're having very troublesome spasms, keeping awake at night, etc., Botox can be very helpful, but you need quite a lot of it. You know, a lot of the percentage of your muscle bulk, total body muscle bulk, in your legs is very high. 
So it, it can be a problem getting enough there to do the job. Baclofen, which is one of the drugs one might use as an oral tablet to uh, reduce spasticity, but it's very sedating, can be given directly into the spine via a pump. So we've done this in a few patients. Actually, I've done it more often in other conditions than PLS, but it can be very successful because what you're doing is putting the chemical directly into the spinal fluid and bathing the spinal cord in much tinier amounts of drug, but it's effective because it's being applied directly where you want it, and you don't get this sedation. And it can be titrated, it can be adjusted for people's symptoms very nicely. It's expensive, it's invasive, it comes with some technical issues, but it can be extremely successful, and certainly in Oxford it's now something that we can do. There's a team of people with a neurosurgeon and others who, who do this all the time, and it can be very good. So that's spasticity and cramps and startle. Secretions are definitely a problem. And, you know, we, we have a lot of different drugs available for secretions. What does that tell you? It tells you that none of them are very satisfactory. If you have lots of different options, that's a problem. So why do you get secretion problems? Well, I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm unconsciously swallowing every 20 or 30 seconds as saliva builds up. I'm not thinking about it. And in conditions where the corticobulbar tract, that's the equivalent of the corticospinal tract, but it's affecting the muscles of speech and swallowing in the face, the swallowing reflex can be markedly inhibited. So people simply are not swallowing spontaneously. The saliva builds up, but they actually also have a rather brisk um, objection in their throat to the saliva building up, so they can cough and splutter. But it comes forward, it comes out of the front of the mouth, and that's really unpleasant in all sorts of ways. You can get quite quickly dehydrated if it's very bad. You produce several litres of saliva a day, and uh, we normally recycle it. So how do we deal with that? Well, you can dry out the secretions using drugs. And most of the drugs that we use, we're using the first-line drugs, which affect a particular chemical in the nervous system, and we're using the side effects. So hyacin is a drug that's used in sleeping, in, in seasickness tablets but it makes your mouth dry as a side effect. So that's worn as a patch, or can be taken as a tablet or a liquid, and can work very well, but it can also make people feel drowsy. So it doesn't work for everybody. Atropine works in a similar way, but we use eye drops that are normally used for glaucoma, and we use them off license by two or three times a day, putting them under the tongue when people particularly are bothered, and that can be helpful, but not for everybody. Then there are other, other options. The theme here is that, um, this is work that was led by Chris McDermott, where we kind of all contributed to, you know, find out what people are taking, what they found effective in the UK. And all of these things are sort of equally effective, but not effective in everybody, if I can put it that way. So, so basically, you have to sort of ring the changes and try and find something. And very often, we are left in an unsatisfactory situation where we're not really achieving what people want, which is relief from their increased saliva. Of course, a dry mouth isn't comfortable either. And, you know, the saliva has a function of, of a bacterial, antibacterial, and various things. It's important. So the other thing you can do is take the secretions away completely by injecting botulinum toxin into the salivary glands. So that can be very successful. It's a bit of a hit-and-miss affair, quite literally, because these are big glands, and mostly it's done by people who are doing Botox for other reasons. What you really need is somebody who's doing this all the time, possibly with ultrasound control to make sure that the gland is injected, switches off the saliva. And that can be helpful. Remarkably, some people irradiate the salivary glands. 
which we've never done actually, but there's a presentation coming up at the International ALS Symposium from the US in uh, December where a hundred patients have been done. I'm looking forward to that because it maybe it will convince me that we should be doing that. So lots of options, none of them satisfactory is the story there. Emotionality, so this is again a reflex, just as we are in a state of readiness to run away from a predator, we are also in a state of emotional readiness. So if I tell you a joke, you'll either think that wasn't funny, or you will laugh. You won't think about laughing, it will happen spontaneously, and often crying is the same. So we are, then why, why is that? Probably because it's a primitive form of language and communication, and it has to therefore you know, be ready to be activated. And uh, this is also inhibited by corticobulbar connections, so that we're not constantly you know, responding to the slightest emotional stimulus. We have conscious control over it. So emotional reflex hypersensitivity, as is probably the best way of putting it, um, is probably something that can arise in many parts of the brain, but then focuses down on the relationship between the cortex and the base of the brain, the brain stem, where the motor neurons going out into the muscles are. It has a lot of different names. Forced mm -hmm. laughing and crying, emotional lability, emotional reflex disorder, pseudo-barber affective disorder. <laughs> and that reflects people's varying kind of opinions about what's going on. So it's not depression, it's not dementia, but to people who come across it for the first time, that's how it can appear. And actually, it's interesting, you know, I found it took me several years in clinic not to be brought into the emotional um, atmosphere, because, you know, if someone starts sobbing in front of you, you have an emotional response. So now, you know, it's taken me quite a number of years not to have that emotional response. It's a very powerful thing, that kind of emotion, can therefore be quite socially intrusive. And um, people can find it difficult. But it's characteristic, so it's very explosive. It seems to come absolutely out of nowhere without any build-up. It's not necessarily always in line with how you're really feeling. So, you know, I've had people who are big, tough SAS soldiers or builders or something, who suddenly say, well, they turn on the telly and there's a program about animals, and they start crying. They've never have done that before. So it's not congruent with their previous emotional range, but it has some emotional content. But once you start crying, if you actually want someone to stop and say, well, did you really feel sad? You often get quite confusing answers, because once you start crying, of course, then your emotional brain is recruited in, and you do start to feel sad. So it's, it's quite a complicated thing. Now, is that a fire alarm, or is somebody phoning a friend or something? Right. So, um, and it's difficult to suppress. You simply, by definition, cannot suppress it. So it's problematic. So actually, what we do a lot of is, is explain to people, as I've just done to you, what it's all about. And quite often that helps people to the point where they don't necessarily need to have treatment. And there are treatments that can be very helpful. So old-fashioned antidepressants, they're not working as antidepressants in this context, but they are obviously affecting some pathway in the brain, which may have some elements in common with depression, and they use it at a much lower dose, so they're not treating depression. Um, but sometimes the side effects of drugs like amitriptyline don't go down very well. Sometimes it's very good because it dries your mouth up and it can help you sleep. So actually some people get benefit from those side effects. Another newer kind of antidepressants probably works slightly less well but can be better tolerated. And as was mentioned, this drug called Nudexter or Dextromethorphanquinidine, um, we would like to think it might be available in this country eventually, but um, it's taken a very long time 
due to all sorts of legal wrangling and commercial issues that I won't bore you with, but it does look like a drug that might be better tolerated and work quite well. So I am now going to hand over to Rachel to talk about some other issues. And this wonderful photograph was um, one of our patients came into clinic and showed us this that she wears to try and explain to people that she is not deaf, she's not drunk, and she's completely normal, she just can't talk. So it's a real demonstration of what you had to do to convince the outside world that, I mean, you know, people rapidly become treated in a, in a sort of childlike fashion because they can't talk. So it's a hugely problematic and challenging thing. So very often people tell me, both with who have MND and PLS, that they notice very early on changes in their speech and um, how, they, how they sound. Maybe before anybody else around them notices the difference, but it's a very personal thing, your voice, and, if it, start, and it starts to change. Um, and it's partly because the, the tongue and the lips and the soft palate and the jaw are all involved with a, a kind of the changes from um, the neurological changes. And this can cause um, slurred speech, sometimes slower, and sometimes unclear speech. And I think it's, again, it's quite different from somebody with ALS who has a lot of weakness and they seem to talk as if, as Martin would describe it, with a, a hot potato in their mouth. So their tongue is very, is very um, flaccid and, and the weakness. But with people with um, PLS, sometimes the sound is quite different, slightly more nasally and more tone. Um, this is normally um, um, kind of approached by speech and language therapists who are very skilled, and they will talk very much about modifying speech, how to talk more slowly, how to take a deep breath before you speak, changing the environment, um, talking in a quieter uh, place, and, and all sorts of advice, which isn't actually always very easy to do because speech is very spontaneous, and we do it all the time. And sometimes it can be very frustrating because speech becomes that a little bit slower. So occasionally people use uh, communication aids, um, and of course there's the, what we call the low-tech things, which are writing down spatial expressions and, and hand signals, which can be very useful. And there's also high-tech equipment, like the light writer, iPad, um, uh, laptops, and we do have eye gaze available, but actually, thinking about it, very, very few people use eye gaze or need to use eye gaze, and very often a light writer is, is very, just uh, enough to help with, um, with communication. But even with the communication aids, it's sometimes slow, it can be frustrating, and at times um, people have said it's quite embarrassing. But it is always possible. And I, I just point out this book written by uh, Michael Wenham at the back. And he wrote it. And I think he describes communication and living with PLS so far more eloquently than I could. Um, I think it's a fantastic book. I have got a copy. M Michael didn't bring any with him. But if you do want to talk to him, if you'd like a copy, do leave your um, contact details with him. And he'll be able to um, send you one. Um, he did point out it was written a little while ago, but I think it has a fantastic insight, obviously, um, because he's written it beautifully, about the communication and, and some of the issues that he has to deal with. And I think um, 
going to posture management. Well, this is really Jennifer Rolf's um, area of expertise, but she wanted me to very get across to you the, the problems that she has managing things. Because of the changes are very slow and the increased tone and the gravity pulling against people, sometimes the, when people need wheelchairs and things, it's so important to get the posture correct because with, with the tone and the spasticity comes potential for deformity. So she really needs and really urges people to have a very good seating system so that they, they can relax and relax back and, and kind of do away from, away from some of the problems with gravity. And Jenny is a specialist OT, and she looks very much at the wheelchairs, um, head supports, posture and seating, sometimes the use of mobile arm supports, um, and bed comfort, and is working with a national um, strategy with Karen about wheelchair, um, wheelchair to enable everybody to have an electric wheelchair. The picture is really for Jenny rather than <laughs> PLS. It's somebody um, she's cared for with MND. But um, I think it's, it's the chair is extraordinary and something that they have developed that can change with a person's needs. So the hand, the hand controls can change, the posture can change to enable people to really carry on living their life um, to the full. And this is Jenny um, giving somebody a chair because they wanted to be able to access their garden and go out and about. And I think uh, that's the major work that she does, is enabling people to carry on living the way they, they uh, choose. And the last thing, and I suppose this is my chosen topic, <laughs> is uh, talking about sexuality. And I think there are lots of different definitions for sexuality, but I, I'm very drawn to the fact that it's, it is something that encompasses all of us uh, as possibly an energy force, but it's much more than the, um, the sex act. It's the whole of who we are, the essence of who we are, and how it changes when we have to... Um, when we have problems or disability changes quite a lot. And I think it's talking about sexuality, which is the, the kind of the difficult thing. Sexuality is very mainstream for many, many of us, really, and you just have to ha now have a kind of an ordinary iPhone to discover. And I discovered this just recently. That heart, this one, which is an ordinary app that's ordinarily on my phone, if I were to press it, I go into my health, um, health chart, and I can find, I can track my sexual activity. And, <laughs> and also, more alarmingly, you'll see the bottom, the bottom button. Uh, I can share my data, if, if anybody was interested. But you'll notice there's no data there. And, and that's not really because I'm shy, it's just because I discovered this yesterday. But, <laughs> but the thing is that it's very mainstream, and people are talking about it. They're talking about sexuality all the time. My children talk about it far too much, and sometimes it's far too much information that I really don't wish to hear. But I think they talk, and they're far more open about their sexuality and talking about sex, basically, than I, I ever was with my mother or my father. They would have had a kind of a little heart attack. And my grandparents 
my grandmother used to talk in code and she used to say about my grandfather, he's a good man, he doesn't bother me much, he just bothers the lady down the road. She was from Wales, by the way. But it was only recently I discovered what bothered was. And I thought, ah, but it doesn't say an awful lot for my grandfather's sexual prowess, that she was delighted that he bothered the woman down the road rather than her. But I think the fact that there's a lot, there is a lot that people need to talk about. So what I'm really saying is regardless of ability or disability, sexuality and relationships are really important to everybody. And a lot of research has been done and discovered that people don't really want to talk about it to a, with a healthcare professional, and I'm really not surprised. I can't imagine why I put that up, because Martin always calls me the matron, but I'm not quite like that. But there is a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety. If, if sexuality and relationships are a problem, who do you talk to and how can you talk about it? Well, one of the things I do is teach at Brooks University and I teach um, student nurses how to broach the subject, how to give per people permission to talk about sexuality. And they find this really difficult, actually, really hard. So my message really is don't wait to be asked by a, a healthcare professional because they may well not be able to broach the subject with you. But you could try to broach it with them and talk about, and for example, um, just saying, for example, you've been on a, um, a study day and the nurse told you to talk about da da da. So you can talk about it. Um, and people will listen, and there is a lot of help and advice that people can give about your sexuality and sexuality. Um, because I wasn't sure how much time would be left. I've got a few slides about the subject of stem cells, and the reason is that this is the commonest conversation that we have in the clinic, because people uh, ask, you know, whether stem cell therapy is around the corner, could it offer anything to... We've talked a lot about loss of connections today, and the question is, you know, can we put that right using stem cell therapy? So I thought it'd be useful just to give you some takeaway messages. Um, I mean, what stem cells are, so when we are conceived, a sperm and an egg come together to form one cell. So that one cell gives rise to every single cell in your body. And so that's including 100 billion nerve cells. So they come from cells dividing over and over and over again. Rachel's talk was far too entertaining. <laughs> and um, so, so those 100 billion cells in your brain came from one cell. So that means that if you got that cell again, could you, could you reconstitute? <laughs> could, could you reconstitute? So now this emphasizes the point I was making earlier about how we cannot fail to respond to other people's emotions. So here we go. Um, Maybe it's time for another cup of tea, I don't know. Anyway, so I'll keep going. So, um, you know, so the idea is, could you, could you regenerate these cells by going back to some sort of embryonic state, a stem cell? So that is emphasized in this slide, where each cell, as it divides into others, you can imagine the grains of rice on a chessboard argument. On the first square, you have one grain of rice. On the second, you have two grains of rice. And on the 64th, where you have two to the power of 64 grains of rice, which is a very large number. So as those cells start to divide, they become more and more specialized. Some of them turn into kidney cells, skin cells, brain cells. So the skin, for example, has actually turned into something that's very unlike a nerve cell. But if you were to send it back up the hill to the position where it's called 
pluripotent, meaning it could give rise to other tissues, you have the opportunity to turn that piece of skin into a nerve cell. So we can do that in the laboratory now. And this is a remarkable way of trying to model the disease. So one of the disadvantages neurologists have had is that we haven't been able to access the thing that's going wrong in the first place. We can't start taking a biopsy of somebody's brain to find out what's going on. Whereas if I'm a liver doctor, patient comes in, jaundice, I put a needle into bed, then I take the liver out and have a good look and see what's going on, no problem. Now we can take skin from people with uh, motor neuron disease and from PLS. We can grow that skin in the laboratory, and then we can reprogram it, turn it back, turn the clock back, so it becomes an embryonic type of cell, something called an induced pluripotent stem cell. So these are examples from our lab of, of doing that. It's very difficult, time-consuming, hugely expensive, but very powerful. <laughs> and you know, when you get these cells, you think, well, why not just chuck them back in, and maybe uh, you could get the whole thing connecting up again. But the diagram at the bottom, um, this doesn't work, I think, unless I'm pressing the wrong button. So this diagram at the bottom with a spidery bit, what that is, is one single nerve cell in a rat spinal cord that's been injected with dye. And the purpose of that is to show you that that cell, under the microscope that Ola uh, Hansorga showed you earlier, which has got motor neuron disease in it, that cell actually has this big spidery network of connections. So the corticospinal tract comes down from the brain, and each of those motor neurons in the spinal cord has many thousands of connections with other cells. So if I want to do this, it looks simple, but it involves millions of individual events. More complicated, probably, than any computer that we've ever yet invented. So the problem is not that putting the cells back in, which you could do, and people are trying to do by injecting them in, very, very kind of invasive, but it's making those connections. Those connections formed when you were growing as an embryo and a baby and then a child. So putting the connections back together is the challenge here. Simply putting the stem cells back in is perhaps the least difficult bit of that. It's connecting things up for function, because all that matters to people in this room is function, and that's the problem. So, you know, my message really is that one day it may be possible to put this back together. At the moment, it's very, very difficult. And so we've got a lot going on in the lab in terms of modeling diseases, and that there's a sort of wall in terms of turning that into restoring function. And we have to get over that wall. And as, as Martin said earlier, this is a problem that's solvable, but it may take a very long time. And at the moment, we don't necessarily know where the solutions are coming from. So my message is that stem cells are not ready for the clinic yet. Although if you look at the internet, you'll see people who are giving you a different message, and quite often their message you know, needs to be treated very cautiously. That's all I wanted to say.